Welcome to The Metabolic Link, a podcast that explores the common thread of metabolism in health and disease. This is where science meets society. Welcome to The Metabolic Link. I'm your host, Dom D'Agostino. Today, we're talking with Dr. Walter Longo. Dr. Longo is an Edna M. Jones Professor of Gerontology and Biological Sciences and Director of the Longevity Institute at the University of Southern California. He has an extensive resume, and I'm just going to mention that it talks about his experience and training in neuroscience, in longevity, in immunology, in endocrinology, microbiology, genetics, and pathology. So he did some of the seminal work in calorie restriction and later did work on developing and really branding what's known as the fasting mimicking diet or FMD. So he's shown that these diets can uh, increase stem cell production and enhance longevity. And uh, in 2018, one uh, interesting aspect is that he was Time Magazine's one of the most 50 influential people in healthcare for his research on fasting mimicking diets and as a means to improve health and longevity. We cover a lot of topics and a lot of ground in this area and we talk about various aspects of fasting and protein metabolism uh, as a means to increase longevity and, and aspects of performance. So I'm excited to share this content with you and I hope you share it with others. Thank you. So thank you again for agreeing to do this interview, Dr. Uh, Longo. And we were super excited and honored to have you as one of our first keynote speakers at the Metabolic Health Summit when it was hosted at University of South Florida College of Medicine years ago. I think that was 2016 or 17. So, yeah, that was a great con uh, conference. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, we were super excited to have you. I've been following your research for a long time and keeping up on everything. And it's, uh, to tell you the truth, it's hard to keep up on everything that you're doing. So we know you're super busy. I looked on PubMed and I also looked on clinicaltrials.gov. And I think, I mean, you have really, you are the epitome of moving the science into human application with and you are studying, I mean, just a brief overview, and I encourage people to go to PubMed and pull your articles and also go to clinicaltrials.gov and see the amazing work that you are, uh, you've collaborated with so many people across the globe. You're studying aging, diabetes, cancer, cardiovascular disease, uh, immune function, MS, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, depression, PCOS, uh, skeletal muscle function, uh, looking at randomized clinical trials on, on all these things. So maybe if you could give our audience an overview of, you know, some of the recent studies that came out that you're excited about. Yes. So, I mean, one that we're very excited about is the, the work that came out of Heidelberg. Um, and, and this was an interesting one. It was a diabetes and diabetic nephropathy. And I had almost forgotten about that until I got an email some time ago and they told me, well, we're done and it looks great, you know. And so these were a randomized clinical trial on, uh, on diabetic patients uh, receiving uh, fasting mimicking diet cycles and they received six cycles once a month of the fasting mimicking diet. And so it was great to see, um, first of all, the reduction of drugs. In, in a major portion of the patients. And, and this was an interesting one because it was done against the Mediterranean diet, right? So it was five days a month of the fasting mimicking diet 
against five days a month of, of, of a Mediterranean diet. So it was nicely controlled uh, uh, study. And, um, and so the Mediterranean diet didn't do anything, uh, but the, the FMD did a lot and, and, and the reduction of A1C and so the insulin resistance and the reversal of the diabetes in, in a portion of patients, but in the majority of them, reduction of both uh, what in under, uh, of diabetes drugs but also in some reduction of hypertension drugs, right? So, um, so I, I was very happy about that. And now there's three or four more that are close to being published. So um, I was uh, particularly happy about that because uh, you know knowing that the other ones we had published on pre-diabetes before uh, on a hundred patient uh, randomized trial, but this was the first one addressing diabetes. And now having these other couple of uh, tri trials that have looked at diabetes uh, uh, or pre-diabetes, I was uh, uh, very happy to see uh, such uh, strong results. So that's one. And then um, last couple of weeks, uh, we, we published uh, one paper on Alzheimer, um, two different mouse models of Alzheimer, and then the, the preliminary data, pilot data on the uh, clinical trial that is now going on in Italy. Um, and this was only th the first 30 patients enrolled in the trial. Um, but since it's such old uh, population, we were actually uh, very, um, very happy to see that, you know, 80 year olds could complete uh, one cycle a month of the FMD for a year, which we didn't actually think that uh, we would get, uh, you know, uh, pretty good compliance. I mean, some people dropped out. But, uh, but still, the majority of people seem to be underway to be able to finish it. Um, and in the mice, of course, the, the, not of course, but in the mice, the, the, the cycles of the fasting-making diet uh, worked very, very well in two different mouse models for Alzheimer and uh, showing redu reduction in the pathology, but also reduction in the cognitive decline. Um, and so, um, yeah, there was a, uh, there was a, a, a long study that took us maybe seven or eight years uh, but finally finally we get it out um, and then um, finally the the paper that we just published on immunotherapy the combination of fasting making diet and immunotherapy uh, we have been also been working on that for a long long time and um, and so this is just mice but in mice is working uh, very well in making non-immunogenic uh, cancer uh, cancers immunogenic, or at least some of the non-immunogenic cancers immunogenic. So um, that's, uh, of course, very promising in, in at least uh, initiating clinical trials so that uh, we can see if, uh, if we get similar effects in, in people. Yeah, I'm super interested in the, in the cancer work and have a lot of questions about that. So maybe just one question before we go on to kind of like another topic. So with the fasting mimicking diet, then are you seeing that implementation of the fasting mimicking diet augments the immune system in a way that makes the immune system more uh, vigilant, I guess would be a term to identify cancer cells or uh, to sort of augment cancer-based immune system, or does it augment different therapies that are uh, immune-based therapies that are used for cancer or both maybe, if that makes sense. Yeah. The, uh, I mean, we had published on, on, on the enhanced function of the immune system, and this was close to 10 years ago. But here, I think uh, what we're seeing is the, um, 
Is the cancer being heavily damaged by the uh, by the combination of the uh, well, by the fasting mimicking diet, um, and 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 now the immune system being made more aggressive in the case of immunotherapy, um, and so we're suspecting, and we have a lot of data to to suspect, let's say, that it is the super, the high level of superoxide, high level of, of free radical generation, specifically in the cancer cells, that is making them much more immunogenic, so much more visible uh, as antigens to the, to the immune system. And then the immunotherapy sort of closes the deal by uh, now removing that self-recognition um, uh, mechanism with the PD-1, pd one uh, And so, yeah, so... So we're in fact we just got some funds to do uh, a clinical trial on colorectal cancer uh, with uh, Dr. Joseph Lentz at USC, and 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 the the idea will be to do um, uh, immunotherapy plus fasting mimicking diet plus vitamin C. Um, so in in KRAS mutated cancers, right? So we're sort of moved to is there a way to get a very non-toxic or, or very low toxicity treatment that is more effective than the traditional uh, treatments. Yeah. So that, that's an interesting approach. So the fasting mimicking diet would probably lower glucose and glucose availability and insulin, suppress the hormone insulin. And that may create like an energetic crisis where you said you get more superoxide production, more oxidative stress, and then that would decrease the pentose phosphate pathway, maybe that glycolysis. But with the vitamin C, if you're giving it intravenous, that could actually function maybe as a pro-oxidant. And then you're driving like the fentanyl reaction and, and other things. So you're, is that what you're thinking? Like with vitamin C, I know, you know, it's an antioxidant, but when it's given at a high dose, it could also has a pro-oxidant effect at a high dose. And maybe it could be augmenting that, that redox state to sort of sensitize the cells to have a cancer killing effect through a redox state. Is that, is that sort of the, the idea behind it? Yes, actually we, we published on that a few years ago. And so uh, with, with lots of KRAS mutated cancers, which is uh, a, a big portion of all cancers, uh, we saw that vitamin C, this was described by Luke Cantley and others, and starting back in the days from uh, Linus Pauling. Um, so, Vitamin C can have a pro-oxidant effect on cancer cells, but it's, uh, it turns out that pro-oxidant effect is very limited. And then we showed in the paper, it is very limited because vitamin C causes deactivation of something called HO1 in the cancer cells, in different types of cancer cells, but certainly- right? Hemoxygenase 1. Yeah. So okay. hemoxygenase 1 is actually controlling, we showed in the paper, ferritin. So- so the cancer basically protects itself against vitamin C by making more iron scavenging uh, uh, proteins available, right? So that now the iron that will be available, as you just mentioned, for femtochemistry is no longer available. The sponges that out, and that is able to have a very strong protection actually against the vitamin C. With the fasting mimicking diet, you take the HO1 down, you take the ferritin down, now the free iron becomes available again, and, uh, and they can do tremendous damage. And um, so this is very interesting 
not so much because it happens in the, not only because it happens in the cancer cells, but because it doesn't happen at all in the normal cells, right? So the, the normal cells have a dual protective effect, right? Vitamin C, anti-aging, let's say, but FMD, anti-aging. So now you have two protective effects on all normal cells by definition, right? Because, you know, we've shown that FMD cycles extend the lifespan of a mouse and, uh, and make people um, healthier, let's say. And vitamin C, you could argue, it could be between neutral and positive effects, right? So now lifelong, right? So people take it every day for, for the entire, I mean, Linus Pauling took seven grams a day and that died in the nineties, right? So, yeah, so I think that, that that's a very interesting possibility to use such a simple, I mean, and this is, I think, uh, KRAS, uh, BRAF, the category that is sensitive, it could represent maybe about a third of all cancers, right? So that's that's remarkable yeah. if, 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 if just to think about the possibility that such a simple uh, intervention could replace chemo or even more effective uh, yeah. therapies, you know? That, that's really interesting. I did not know the heme oxygenase story. I actually did my PhD on heme oxygenase two, the constitutive form, whereas heme oxygenase one is the inducible form. Uh, but I'm also aware of, you know, vitamin C also uses the same transporter as glucose. So from my knowledge and that giving a high dose of vitamin C could function as a glucose antagonist to the transporter. And that could impair glucose uh, uh, consumption by the cancer cells and, and actually further augmenting or inducing that energetic crisis, uh, you know, within, within the cancer cells. So I've always been interested in, but I haven't really seen a whole lot of experimental data that really, you know, showed the glucose antagonist effect. I, I have a file of, of papers, but it's not super well, uh, you know, I was wondering if, if mechanistically, or if you're looking at that too. We haven't looked specifically, uh, but, you know, that would make sense if it also, I mean, uh, of course, during fasting and fasting making diets, you're already struggling. And what we see very clearly is this anti, what we call anti, what we named anti-Warburg effect, right? So the, the, by lowering glucose, the cells now, and this new paper, we see exactly the same thing, two, two triple negative breast cancers. The cells now go back to the mitochondria either uh, uh, beta oxidation or, you know, utilizing more of the mitochondrial respiration for energy. And of course, that's, that's, the, that's the problem for them, right? Because they, the mitochondria probably is impaired somehow. And so trying to reestablish that, you know, mitochondrial function is devastating. And um, um, yeah, because they've already genetically rewired to be glycolytic, so yeah. now if they have to, it's impossible to go back. You can go, you can have game mutations to, or maybe even epigenetic changes, but it's, uh, it certainly seems that um, they're not able to switch back to yeah. the previous mm -hmm. states. And therefore, lots of superoxide, lots of radical, lots of DNA damage. And that's why when you compare, you see, you know, the, the treatment alone, very low um, DNA damage. Let's say when we do it with FMD alone, not so much DNA damage, then the chemotherapy alone. And then you see the combination and then uh, the uh, the DNA damage goes sky high. So, uh -huh. yeah, so it, 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 and it does so only in the cancer cells. So that's, uh, yeah. that's I think, the most important part is differential uh, stress sensitization.
Yeah. Well, I, I know you've done a lot of the work, uh, seminal work even, on caloric restriction, on the effects of caloric restriction, kind of mechanistically looking at looking at different pathways. You know, uh, there's there's discussion. I hear people talk about, you know, it's all about calorie restriction. So is would is a fasting mimicking diet, are the benefits to f- fasting mimicking diet, the outcomes that you're looking at, uh, completely dependent upon producing a calorie deficit? And could, you know, the fasting mimicking diet could be more of an optimal way to produce that caloric deficit. Or are there advantages above and beyond the intermittent calorie restriction that you're that you're giving. So I mean, I guess it's stated another way. If you create no, no, I mean, I understood calorie it. restriction, yeah. So uh, yeah. I, would I like And I mean, you work on the ketogenic diet, right? So that's your answer right there, right? So so no, yeah. it doesn't have to be. It does not have to be calorie restricted. Uh, but calorie restriction certainly is a big component, right? So so I think that. In the ketogenic diet, I think what we see, and you know, I've been reviewing lots of papers in the field of cancer, especially ketogenic diet, you see it go both ways, right? Sometimes the cancer loves the fat and, and the ketone bodies, and sometimes the cancer is killed by the ketone bodies. And um, so I think that the calorie uh, restriction or very low calorie is now making it much more difficult for the cancer to adapt because there is nothing to adapt. There's just not enough amino acids, not enough sugar, et cetera, not enough growth factors to carry out that growth, right? So yeah, so it's part um, it's part calorie restriction, but it's part also the, the you know, low amino acids, certain amino acids and the low sugar. Um, and um, and uh, so, so, so yeah, then theoretically, and we've done that, right? You could keep, um, let's say, um, calories normal. You just decrease the protein level. And that's enough already to slow down different types of cancer. Some cancers don't care at all, right? Same as the ketogenic diet. If you lower protein, some cancers grow just as fast. But some cancers, you completely change their growth rate. Uh, so, yeah, then, then we know very well that it's not just about calorie. Uh, it's both about calorie and content. And that's where the fasting mimicking properties come in. Um, so you want to have, uh, you know, even though the fats are relatively high, they're still making, um, making placing the cancer cells in a situation where there's just not enough to uh, grow. Or if they attempt to grow, they get in a worse and worse situation just because um, you know, eventually they're going to run out of all the, the building blocks to, to, to move forward. Yeah. I do want to touch on the, uh, the protein aspect too, because I mean, that has been a, a kind of a big issue in the ketogenic diet world that the protein was too low with kids and it would stunt their growth. But, uh, before I get into that, so one of the, I mean, you, you published a paper, Fasting, Mimicking Diet and Markers or Risk Factors for Aging, Diabetes, Cancer, and Cardiovascular Disease. And uh, so I would like to know, like, what are the top, when it, in regards to biomarkers that you track in the clinical trials? Uh, well, I have kind of two questions about the, the clinical trials. Are you controlling for calories in that, when you compare between different diets, you describe the fasting mimicking diet versus the Mediterranean diet. 
And I was wondering if calories are controlled for uh, on the two or, or a factor and, and looking at the outcomes. And then like, in your opinion, what are the top five biomarkers to be tracking uh, for those things? I mean, we're very much interested in uh, blood pressure, insulin, glucose, triglycerides, HS, HSCRP, those things in the trial that we're running now. But, uh, and I know there's more than five, but I just, in the, in the, you know, the interest of time to keep it uh, kind of short. So it's kind of two questions there. Yeah. Uh, with the, with the clinical trials, are you kind of looking at uh, calories, uh, you know, yeah. and controlling and counting calories and, and the biomarkers that are most impacted by the fasting mimicking diet that are yeah. most important? Yeah, I mean, uh, we're not, I mean, we didn't do the trial in, in Heidelberg, so they decided to go with a uh, normal calorie um, uh, control uh, Mediterranean diet. Uh, and, and, there, and I think that was a good idea because basically, if we're already saying that severe calorie restriction is already part of the, uh, the effect, uh, we are not claiming that this is why the fasting making diet is very low calorie. Uh, so, so the point is that you need the very low calorie, but you also are enhancing that effect, uh, with the, um, you know, low protein, low sugar, high fat. Uh, so that's the idea, right. To, to, to have it all. And the idea is also long-term. If you're thinking about somebody maybe doing this for 40 years or 50 years, uh, we don't want to, uh, generate, a, a, an intake that is not consistent with the actual fasting response, right? So, so, you know, during fasting, yes, you're not taking in fats, but you already have the fats in and they're being released. So to the body, having, you know, fats in circulation, fatty acids in circulation is perfectly normal. It, it is a fasting response. That's what it's always had during long-term fasting. So we also have been trying to think about being respectful of sort of the uh, what people have been exposed to very regularly for tens of thousands of years, right? So whereas let's say that you could do uh, high protein um, uh, fasting making diet, which may and let's say it may work, it may not work because now IGF one could still be increased, but let's say that it worked we will still be concerned that in the long run, um, now you have high protein and low, very low calorie. What happens if you do this for a hundred cycles, right? Uh, so yeah, and there was some issues, I think with, with some old uh, studies with, with these uh, uh, high protein fast diets that cause some, some damage to patients. Um, and so, yeah, so that's the, the type of things that, that I'd be worried about. And then um, as far as markers, um, I think we we're, we're really focusing on uh, how do you make somebody live longer, healthy? And uh, so to us, it's, it's uh, not about one marker or the other, but is, you know, in fact, soon enough, we're going to publish about biological age. And, um, and I, I hope we follow it up. We have, we use the, the bioage model by Morgan Levine, but I think we, we hope to follow up. Now we, we're doing something with Steve Orbert uh, with mice. And then soon enough, I think we hope to move it to, to the human trial. We're starting a huge uh, 500 patient trial in Southern Italy, where we're going to do the, the, the epigenetic luck. Um, so yeah, we're looking at everything and of course, cholesterol and, and, you know, blood pressure and, 
and 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 fasting and A1C and all of that is in there. But then again, sometimes I, I, I remember when we per, first published the 2017 paper, people say, well, it didn't really reduce this or that. And, and we say it shouldn't reduce this or that because most of these markers were normal, right? So we have shown that it didn't reduce glycemia in people that had normal glycemia. It didn't reduce blood pressure in people that had normal blood pressure. And we thought it shouldn't, right? So, so we were interested in the, it was interesting, the, the criticism, uh, because um, that's probably a, an underestimated issue, which is if somebody has a, a, the normal range fasting glucose, you don't necessarily want to drive it down too much because now you're entering maybe another danger zone uh, that may be as bad as the hypertension. Yeah, or even insulin and IGF-1, right? I mean, because you push IGF-1 down really low and then that can kind of cause some some problems too with people become more frail. Uh, even blood pressure, I think there was a study in 2014, right? It's like, if you if you make it to over 90, you know, those people, the people that were better off that had better, you know, less mortality actually had a little bit higher, trended to be higher blood pressure. So if you're over yeah. 90, you know, Low blood pressure is a bad thing, you know. It's and and look at and look at also weight. Now it turns out that if you're maybe yeah. a little bit uh, overweight, uh, if you're 90, yeah. uh, you might be doing better. Um, yeah. So I think it's uh, it's uh, I think very important to start thinking about you know healthy longevity and, and how do you get there. But also, I, uh, of course, what about the the short term effects? You know, somebody uh, might want to have certain performance-related uh, uh, effects. And, and I understand that. So then, then there's got to be some compromise between the, you know, so somebody wants to have a lot of muscle and uh, and is not so worried about getting to 110. Yeah, then I think it's, it's, it's okay probably to do some changes that you might not want to do in somebody who says, no, first of all, I'm worried about living very long. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you talk to different people, you hear people talk about the more muscle you have, the greater strength and functionality you'll have and longevity being associated with a higher muscle mass and strength. But and that'll reduce falls and, and other and muscle is also an endocrine organ that release like myokines and other things that could be beneficial. But I guess from your perspective, what do you have to do and eat to maintain that muscle is also impacting organ function and things like that. And, uh, you know, the, the, the discussion about protein always comes up in different groups, especially that I'm associated with. And there's like a big following with a carnivore diet. Uh, I don't know of any centenarian carnivores. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you do. But I, I think I heard you on one podcast that so many of the blue zones that accept maybe like Okinawa, they do eat red meat, but it's like, you know, once once a week or something like that. So, yeah, you know, they have a glass of water right? because... red meat. And yeah, so I was actually, I wanted to know, uh, you know, in regards to protein, I, I heard your recommendations are pretty low uh, in regards to, you know, a little bit lower than the standard. I guess also, what would you say to the person who's on a high protein diet, not, not necessarily a protein sparing modified fast that you had mentioned before, because there's some problems with that. But what would you say to someone who's on a higher protein carnivore like diet that is getting two grams of protein per kilogram? 
and all their biomarkers are kind of going in the right direction. I mean, just for the record, I'm not a fan of the carnivore diet, but I get a lot of emails from people who are just eating meat and eggs and maybe some fish with that. And they're just like no fiber, no plants or anything. And they share their blood work and all their biomarkers. But, you know, I look at it and say, this is a calorie restriction effect. You know what I mean? They're eating this way and they're producing a calorie deficit. And, but I, I don't think we know the long-term effects of that. Well, no, so, we do, right? We do. And, uh, and they're not good, you know, uh, meaning that at least from epidemiological studies, right? So, um, and, and in my book, I talk about, you know, the need to move away from one pillar type of science. So I, I use the clinical trials, the randomized clinical trials, which you could say, you know, the people that write to you, they're doing sort of like end of one clinical trial, not randomized, but um, yeah, so that's one pillar, right? You got four missing, right? So then, then you want to say, well, what about the centenarians? You want to say, well, what about the mice and the flies? And, you know, do they live longer when they eat a lot of protein? And then um, you want to look at epidemiological data, right? So what about, um, you know, millions and millions of people that need a lot of protein versus low protein? And, and all of that, and, and, you know, in our case, we also look at genetics of protein signaling, right? So, for example, the longest-lived mice um, in history are the ones lacking the growth hormone receptor. Uh, and, the, and the people that we studied for many years, the Larones, uh, lack the growth hormone receptor. They, they rarely get cancer. They rarely get diabetes. they cognitively younger than, than, than their chronological age. Yeah, so I think that when you look at all the pillars, um, it, the people that have high protein, and we published that years ago, the Americans had high protein, had a 400% increased risk of developing cancer, 75% increased risk of um, dying early, um, but that was only until age 65, 70, right? Then it turned around. Then the 80-year-old that was eating low protein, reporting eating low protein, wasn't doing so good at all. And now when you go to the, going back to your questions, when you go to the zones like Sardinia, Loma Linda, et cetera, et cetera, if you think about it, what you said earlier is true for the past, but it's not true for the last 30 years. So the centenarians, had a very poor protein diet, maybe meat once a month, right? On average, or once a week to once a month. But then eventually in the last 30 years, when they got to 70s and 80s, they moved in with their children many times, right? Or they moved in in nursing home, let's say Loma Linda nursing home. Now all of a sudden they have a ton of products and maybe every day or every other day, right? So, so and that makes it matches very well what we saw with the epidemiological data, right? You, you do 60, 70, 75 years of a very poor restricted diet, but sufficient, yeah. And, uh, and then you move to a much richer, uh, more variety of food, more proteins. But yeah, so that we believe that that's probably, uh, you know, with we're talking about generalization now and everybody's different. So obviously there's going to be a lot of personalization, but in general, there seems to be like, this seems to be what works, you know, to, to block the, the growth pathways without interfering with the growth of muscle, et cetera, et cetera. Why? Because having high IGF-1 doesn't necessarily help you um, having more of an IGF-1 
effect, right? Like having lots of insulin all the time and insulin IGF-1, very similar. Um, at least the receptor is very similar. So having a lot of insulin doesn't help you at all, right? In the long run, it helps in the short run, right? So yeah, so then it goes back to the people that make those comments. Well, don't confuse acute effects, like you can't confuse the acute effect of insulin with the long-term effect of insulin. So short-term, if you inject yourself with insulin, you will say, I feel great. My glucose dropped, my A1C dropped. I'm, you know, let's say a normal person 40 years ago. Eventually, what's going to happen to you, you're going to develop insulin resistance and, and you're going to die early. And, uh, and so all the epidemiological data on, on low-carb diets uh, seem to confirm that with the exception of the vegans, right? The, low, the relatively low-carb vegans, if they have around 40%, 35%, 40 carbs, and they're mostly plant-based, those seem to be doing the best of all, right? So, so yeah, after that is the high-carb groups and, and as you probably know, the Lancet and this meta-analysis out there are showing that, that um, you know, it's best to, and better to have an 80% carbohydrate diet than to have a low-carb diet for overall mortality and longevity. So yeah, so the carnivores, uh, could it work? Yes, it could, you know, we could be surprised. And even though it's not something that makes any sense, uh, it surprises everybody because they're doing a very special you know, high animal protein because so nobody does that, right? So nobody eats like uh, in the paleo years. So so it is possible, right? That that if you I, did I that, think, yeah, I think I'm sorry to interrupt, but but I think like a common theme that you have mentioned many times is really the energy balance. I think I mean the biggest problem there's the macronutrient debates, but I, I think like you know we are just eating too much food. And if all you eat is meat, you inadvertently create a calorie deficit. And, you know, I've seen the insulin levels of these people just eating in a meat only diet and their insulin was like two or three and their IGF one's low, uh, even though they're eating a uh, two grams plus of, you know, of, of protein per kilogram. And it's because they've created a calorie deficit. And, and I yeah. think because they're not overeating. So I think that's right, no, they're under eating. Most of the times when you do that, you, start, you can't eat meat all the time. So you start yeah. eating less. Yeah, so absolutely. But, but my point was, you know, we don't know, right? We could be getting yeah, super nice. right? And they, yeah. So it, it's like really a gamble. It's like going to Vegas on your, with your life, right? And, and yeah. it could work, but most likely you're going to come out of Vegas losing, right? So so yeah, so that's the, the likely scenario that they're gonna lose out of this, but they could surprise us all. And sometimes people go to Vegas and come out with a lot of money. So, so yeah, everything is possible. A subset of them. But I, but I think like, I think what we can agree on is that creating a calorie deficit, even periodically is the way to go. And, and the optimal way to do that is probably with a, a fasting mimicking diet. Cause you don't, you don't necessarily tell people what to eat. You just give them a prescription within a predetermined time frame, And it's like, it's pretty easy to implement. So, uh, but I think, you know, I think that if we want to move this, uh, because fasting ideas have been around for 2000 years, right. They, and they have basically up to maybe 20 years ago, they had very little role in medicine. Now, all of a sudden, you know, the New England and they're starting to write articles about this and, and lots of papers out there. And it's starting. But I think until we have more of an FDA-like, very careful, lots of trials, lots of, you know, 
composition that are exactly so recently we approached the FDA for the cancer the using the fasting making diet for hormone therapy in combination with hormone therapy for cancer treatment and the FDA in the initial discussions was basically saying you're going to have to make this much simpler uh, much more um, um, repeatable let's say right so we we will have to be able to reproduce the same exact uh, um, FMD uh, every time, right? So then that and only that could be tested in an FDA trial. So, so, so I think that for this to stick around and be in the toolkit of doctors and nutritionists and all over the world, I think we're going to have to standardize it, right? And, and maybe the FDA will say, ah, you don't need to have approval for everything because it's, it's food. But I think then again, we cannot say, oh, go home and improvise. Uh, because even though some people could benefit, I would say that probably as we've seen before, when people did that and we, we looked into it, uh, there's more damage than good. You know? So people go home and say, oh, I'm going to do 16 hours. I'm going to do 18 hours. I'm going to do uh, you know, every day. I'm going to do two days a week. I, I think that the result of that is probably more damage than good. Now three papers just came out and, and I actually wrote, wrote a little preview for two of them. In the um, in in cell metabolism, and sure enough, what we have been saying for years: people that skip breakfast, they took people, they moved the breakfast forward by four hours, and that was enough to reduce energy expenditure um, and increase hunger, right? And so now think of all the people that do sixteen hours and skip breakfast. Now you know that could be still beneficial, but you know, and now compared to maybe doing 16 hours where you skip dinner, uh, that could make a big difference, right? So I'm saying that standardization and also uh, lots of uh, um, lots of trials and, and um, you know, making sure that people follow what's been uh, very well tested. Um, yeah. It's, it's going to be the way in the future that this could make a big difference on people. Yeah. You know, I occasionally skip breakfast and lunch and then eat, you know, at the end of the day and fast throughout the day, but I end up eating too much food at nighttime and trying to get in all my calories and that can disrupt sleep. So I found that, you know, this morning I had, I had steak and eggs, which, you know, I, but I, but I limit it to a, a certain amount and then I fast all day and it's been about, you know, 10 hours. And then I eat, I fast, basically do like two fasts <laughs> per day. Like I will fast overnight and then I'll eat a breakfast at eight o'clock or no, seven o'clock. And then I eat my dinner around six or seven. So yeah, and I do the same. Yeah, I do the same. Yeah, yeah. I do, I've been doing the same for, for 20 years now. Yeah. And I think, and that's what I wrote also in my book. I think that's the best way to do it, right? Because now you, um, you don't push the fasting, the daily fasting to more than 12 hours. And uh, so you get lots of benefits as Sachin Panda and others have shown you get lots of benefits from the time restricted eating, but you don't push yourself to that range that seems to be associated with a shorter lifespan. So most people that skip breakfast or most studies showing people skipping breakfast show that they live shorter. And uh, so why is that? Well, maybe because one possibility is, and Sachin will say absolutely not. So I don't know, maybe he's right, but it may be that 16 hours, if you do it for 30 years or 40 years, uh, is causing problems. Right? And cardiovascular problems could be one of the, the ones that it's causing, whereas the 12 hours that we see everywhere, and I always say I've never seen a negative studies on the 12-hour time-restricted eating. 
And that's what he's showing about 11 hours he's showing to be very, very beneficial in, uh, in helping people metabolically, right? So uh, yeah, so I think this keeping lunch, having breakfast and dinner, and keeping the fast, the daily fast to the say, or the nightly fast to about 12 hours. Um, that to me seems it's very safe and seems to be very effective. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. So I can't, maybe I'm on the right track. I've gravitated to that, you know, after many different, you know, uh, dietary protocols to so that morning breakfast, I just feel better later in the day. Sometimes I feel better in mid morning if I didn't eat breakfast, but then I just end up overeating, you know, later in the day. So, you know, I'd like to get your opinion on what is the future of this approach? Like I talked to a patient yesterday, actually one that's using fasting mimicking diets. I think maybe they're consulting with one of your dietitians. Kim is one of them, maybe that is, and, you know, getting great success from it. They're happy. They feel like this is the approach to, to go, but I'm wondering like what, what you envision the future approach would be. The people that I talk to that want to implement this, they want the food to go on their doorsteps. They want like, you know, uh, all the food, they want the option for the food to be delivered to them sort of like a prescription, right? And they want, uh, in addition to that, I think it would be really helpful to have a, a bio-wearable that the data would go to the, uh, the clinician or the dietitian where they can see the compliance that they're actually following the food that's that that's being given to them. And then the patient too would have like 24 seven access through an app if they had any questions. So that's, that's really like the three things that I think would be real important. It's come out of many discussions that I've had that patients need to have, you know, their food right there for this to be pre-prepared, probably tailored to them in a way or personalized because not everybody likes to eat the same kinds of foods, but the same basic macronutrient ratios with the low protein uh, or the, the, and they need to have that bio-wearable device that can show compliance. And I think that's gonna be really key. And they're always gonna have questions, but to have some kind of system where they can ask questions through an app. And yeah. is, is that, you know, that, 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 that's what I think of when I think of like the future of metabolic based dietary therapies. Is it, yeah. And, and that's already pretty much right. So, so it's all been done. Um, I think that it, with the fasting mimicking diet, um, I think it's not being, it's not about being, uh, you know, personalized, but it's about not having anything in it that somebody dislike so much that they have a food aversion right so let's say you have onions and somebody says i can never eat onions of course then you have a have aversion without onions but other than that i think it's a medicine like you say right so it has to be treated as such and 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 it's not a medicine that is going to replace people's food people can still eat whatever it is that they eat you know say 350 out of 365 days a year right so then for those 15 days, break broken down to once every four months. And this is exactly the trial that we started in Italy, right? So that's what people are going to do. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so for those five days, you want to have the medicine. I mean, imagine if somebody say, I want Lipitor, but I want Lipitor made for me. You know? um, so yeah, you can't do that, right? So you have to have FDA trials and and, and sometimes Lipitor or, or some, some um, cholesterol inhibiting drug may not work for you, then you can change, you can have two or three versions, right? But so that's, I think, almost uh, there. 
And then the, um, the devices, uh, for example, in the trial, we're collaborating um, with, uh, um, with an expert in, uh, um, in sleep, uh, Matthew Walker uh, at Berkeley. And, um, and in the trial, we're gonna have, for example, the ring, uh, um, uh, the wearable ring. And so we do, do, do follow the, um, the sleep yeah. And, and, and in the trial in Southern Italy, we're doing the longevity diet, the everyday longevity diet, which is, uh, of course, uh, um, you know, a, a mostly pescatarian diet, low protein. Um, and then, um, you know, the 12 hours, the skipping lunches in there, and et cetera, et cetera. Or that plus the FM, uh, no, sorry, the FMD alone every, every four months, or that plus the longevity diet, right? So we want to see um, what happens. And and, uh, you know, we're also starting to use continuous glucose monitors on lots of patients. So, for example, we have some doctors that, that we use that on. Um, and, but I think at some point soon, we'll probably uh, do clinical trials where um, that, that is tested. And then an application, th those are being developed. And soon enough, I think we should have the application. So, like you say, people can, can uh, monitor their own uh, uh, status um, and um, and um, you know be able to react and see how um, you know the FMD is working for them. Yeah, and maybe the future is the data from the FMD, you know, through the bio wearables, the glucose monitoring, and the sleep too. I can imagine sleep would probably improve. Uh, would go to an AI platform, and then that that data can come out and give actionable advice to the uh, to the participant or the patient or the participant. And I think really that could be the future, you know, just uh, and that would further validate uh, the science and the application of FMDs okay. or any, any diets, really. I mean, that's what we're kind of trying to do with the ketogenic diet and epilepsy. You know, if they if patients wore a CGM or a continuous ketone monitor or a continuous lacto lactate monitor, which is being developed now and being used in some studies. So, uh, so yeah, you know, I have a, maybe one other personal question, like every day I have, there's certain foods I wanted to ask you, uh, if, if people should avoid, and I know protein should be, you know, low or in moderation. That was a big part of the protocol that you're working on, but like I have dark chocolate, I have blueberries, I have wine pretty much every day. And a lot of people ask questions about, you know, these things and, um, you know, everything sort of in moderation is there are any particular foods that would be excluded from, uh, you know, the the protocol, the longevity protocol that you are putting together? Uh, should people avoid alcohol? So I'm seeing a lot of data coming out. There's mixed reviews on alcohol, but some of the data indicates, you know, uh, a glass a day. I mean, I'm sure coming from Italy, <laughs> you know, my family was big into wine and even in the pasta and everything too. Uh, is, uh, should we be avoiding processed food or alcohol uh, or should it just be considered, you know, moderation approach? Yeah. First of all, I, I encourage people. Uh, so I started uh, two clinics for the foundation, nonprofit clinics, one in Milan and one in Los Angeles. And the Los Angeles is createcures.org uh, um, is the clinic. And so, um, you know, for example, low protein, we're, I'm a little worried when, when, when I, when I say that, because some people, when I when I say low protein, they think, well, I'm just going to avoid proteins, and then they become malnourished, right? So, 
So that's why I think it's so important, even if you do it by telemedicine, to talk to somebody. If it's not our uh, dietitian, talk to somebody else that they know what they're doing. Because, for example, if somebody's vegan, they might need to be more around one gram or maybe even 1.2 grams of proteins uh, per kilogram per day. But it's only the vegans that are eating mostly legumes. If you're eating legumes, seeds, and nuts, you may not need to go as high, right? So it gets pretty tricky, particularly if you uh, are one of those groups that are doing something particular, like you know, being vegan or even being vegetarian, uh, etc. So yeah, so I think it's uh, um, it's worth uh, uh, the investment. Um, so food to avoid, um, I think that. Um, I always say, if you if you think you always must avoid uh, something, it's time to have it. Uh, so so, and, and I'm excluding, of course, people that the ideology based on somebody is against animal uh, being killed and all of that. That's a different story. But but I'm saying, other than that, um, then um, then I think that these um, you know sort of obsessions are are just that. But, uh, but then again, uh, as you see in the latest um, uh, paper representing millions of people, three continents by, by the group in Norway, uh, sure enough, people that had consistently legumes were number one, uh, whole grains were number two, and nuts uh, uh, were number three as the super healthy life expectancy uh, foods. Red meat was to be avoided or, or removed. Processed meat to be avoided or removed, and um, and uh, yeah. So those alone, uh, you know, ch these changes and a few more uh, compared to a Western diet were associated with 13 years of increased life expectancy. It started at 20, 11 to 13 years, and I think eight to nine years. It started at 60. It's pretty remarkable, right? If you just think that this is just a part of what uh, we and others have been uh, have been proposing with the longevity diet. So yeah, so I think that um, you know even white meat to me uh, should be minimized uh, uh, in the 20 to 65, 70 uh, range, um, and uh, animal-based products should, should should be minimized, but it should not be excluded because again, it's very difficult to get certain amino acids and to get all that you need from a, a truly vegan diet. And it, it takes work. And most people, I think, eventually might become malnourished. Not surprisingly, one paper I cite now is the fracture, a recent paper that came out on fractures showing the vegans had two and a half fold increase in certain type of fractures. And overall, they had an increase in, in fractures compared to the carnivores, right? So, but the pescatarian didn't and the vegetarian didn't, but the vegans did, right? So, they, yeah. so those are some of the, the examples that we're gonna see more and more coming up in um, in, uh, in in both sides, right? So the ones that eat uh, the Western diet, you know, we give the Western diet to the uh, to the mice, and and uh, not surprisingly, they started developing high cholesterol, cardiac problem. They become uh, you know fat, and they die much earlier than the, than the control mice, right? So. So that's pretty obvious that, um, um, yeah, so as, as far away as you can stay from that Western diet. Uh, fish. I mean, you know, your, your protocol does incorporate fish a couple times a week, at least. And the data on fish is very good, right? Very I mean, good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, maybe even three times a week, you know, especially if you change it, right? Then avoid the low mercury, change it around. So don't have to, because there's starting to be a lot of toxicity associated with a lot of fish, right? So it's probably good to change it around and not always have the same one just to avoid that. That is, let's say, some of those fatty fish contain some toxins and you keep eating that three times a week, that could be a problem. So unfortunately, now we're also faced with with a polluted world. And, um, And so, yeah, so then... Maybe thinking about that is also helpful. But yeah, probably three times a week now. I think it's uh, it's good to have uh, three fish meals, um, and especially omega three uh, containing fish. You know, high omega three. So well, sardines, always, uh, uh, salmon, etc. I eat a tremendous amount of fish, and I recently got my heavy metals tested. I did the hair test and the blood test, and my metals were very low. But I tend to eat a lot of uh, sardines. Uh, a lot of sardines and mackerel and maybe some other fish, salmon here and there. But okay, the last food I want to ask you about is uh, eggs. So I know there's a bit of a controversy on eggs and they can be incorporated into a vegetarian diet. And uh, you didn't mention eggs in the diet. They're to be avoided or to be incorporated. Uh, but I know fish and eggs are some of the most nutrient dense foods that we have, high in protein, but nutrient dense food. So what's your thought on egg as an economical source of protein that you can have as a vegetarian? Is that incorporated into your program? I think there's a New England Journal of Medicine meta-analysis on eggs, right? And I believe, if I remember correctly, starting with three a week or more, you're starting to see the problems, right? So that's what we've been, I've been preaching. Stick with two or three eggs a week um, and probably uh, the nourishment is going to uh, is going to be more important than than problems because even the New England cannot see anything wrong with uh, in those they eat two or three a week. As you get higher, uh, just like with alcohol, as you were mentioning before, so the meta analysis are showing about up to five drinks a week, uh, no problem. You know, very little effect. Now, what I've been saying is that whether it's eggs or with cholesterol, let's say, if you're genetically predisposed to have sky high, you know, cholesterol in response to eggs, uh, or if you're, um, if you have some, one of the cancers that is, um, um, that has high risk factors that are also affected. Uh, so if you're already predisposed to it, for example, I think esophageal cancer is one of them, then if alcohol is also a risk factor for that, I wouldn't combine two risk factors, right? So uh, I will find out is there, I mean, there is not very many, but there's like four or five cancers that are clearly uh, uh, associated with, um, so high alcohol consumption increases the risk for those cancers. So if you have another risk factor uh, that adds to that, probably not a good idea to even have a low uh, drinking pattern, but other than that, I just don't see any reason to take out the pleasure of having these five glasses a week uh, from the great majority of people, especially because the data on longevity is neutral to positive, right? So if you have to say three or four or five drinks a week, uh, yeah. those people tend to live the same, if not a little bit longer than everybody else. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so you're pro coffee too. I mean, I see a lot of the data seems to be pretty overwhelming on coffee. And it just seems like one of those things, if I had to give it up, that would be hard for me to do. I'd probably get about three to five cups a day, you know? And uh, so that's something that's incorporated into 
uh, the protocol too. I think you had mentioned having coffee like for lunch <laughs> instead of, uh, you know, for- Yeah, and that's what I do. You know, I have coffee for lunch and uh, yeah, coffee actually very little negative data when you're in the one to two cups, actually positive data is in the three, four cups a day for Parkinson, some data for I mean, reducing Parkinson and reducing Alzheimer. Uh, in yeah. those that have heavy coffee drinkers, but of course you cannot recommend it because when you get to the three, four, five cups a day, a lot of people have problems. So, so yeah. So I would say though, and I think I said this in the book, if somebody that has a lot of uh, Alzheimer in the family um, or a lot of Parkinson in the family, maybe genetic uh, familial Parkinson or 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 you know ApoE4, let's say uh, in the fam- in in the genes. Um, Alil uh, may not be such a bad idea to talk to a nutritionist, a dietitian, talk to the doctor and say, hey, let me try three or three cups a day of coffee um, and see how re- I respond. And if, I, if I'm okay, uh, maybe it's a good, uh, you know, that and lots of olive oil, there seems to be also a good, um, um, you know, a good uh, uh, potential reducer of, of the risk of, of uh, um, you know, developing Alzheimer or certainly progressing with the, uh, cognitive uh, diseases. Well, that that's great to hear because uh, it's going to be a while before I give up coffee. Well, well, Dr. Longo, thank you so much for sharing this, uh, all your knowledge and your wisdom on this topic of longevity. Uh, I encourage people to check out your website, the Create Cures Foundation website. It's, a, it's an awesome website. It's got a lot of information on what you're doing. Uh, also, you've written a number of books, so I encourage everybody, I won't mention them all, but I, I like that you had a book on uh, longevity begins uh, with kids, with the bambinos. So, and I think that's like almost a low-hanging fruit. We really have to educate uh, our youths and our kids to, to get off sugary drinks and to really uh, create these uh habits early on to prevent, you know, all these age-related chronic diseases from creeping yeah. up when you get older. So I can not just uh, sugary drinks, because in that book, we showed that the Italian is so, so far is only in Italian and we're translating now into English, but we showed that Italian children ate about a pound a day of high starch food, you know, refined uh, star- starch food. So pasta, bread, uh, potatoes, uh, fruit juices, so they all a pound a day. And that was much, at least in the Italian children, we thought it was much more of a problem than the sugary drinks, of which they only drink one a week, you know. So they had the sugary drink a week, but they had a pound a day of bread and pasta and, and fruit juices. So yeah, so sometimes the the you know the the, the sources of the problem and, and it's surprising how many parents we talk to. And uh, they had no idea. They just thought, well, well, pasta. I mean, of course, what's wrong with that? And we say, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just wrong when there's an 100 extra calorie coming from starches per day. And eventually that 100 calories, you know, of course in a month is 3000 calories, right? And, uh, and so eventually it goes very quickly and now you have an obese child and in Italy for overweight children has surpassed the United States, right? So not obesity, but uh, overweight, especially in the South. So yeah. very interesting, right? So how sometimes uh, that, you know, the source of the problem is not what we think it is. Well, thank you for all the work that you're doing on longevity and also keeping our 
our kids healthy too. I think that's a great area to start putting your time and energy into in addition to all the different diseases that you're treating, diabetes and cancer. I wanted to get more into the cancer, uh, but maybe we can follow up, you know, at another time, or maybe you can give, you know, fill us in at, uh, you know, giving a presentation at Metabolic Health Summit, perhaps in the future. So we would really love that. We had uh, Dr. Sachin Panda was one of our speakers uh, last time. He gave a great talk. Uh, Well, thank you again, uh, Dr. Longo, for for doing this interview, for giving up your time, and for all the educational outreach that you do, in addition to all the podcasts, but all the books, and and through Cures, uh, Create Cures Foundation, too. That's a, an amazing, and I know a lot of your book proceeds uh, go and support. All of it, all of it. You, oh, all of them. That is fantastic. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, that's just sort of solidifies your, your passion and your commitment to really making a difference and making an impact on metabolic health. Uh, I can't think of anybody else that's actually like moving the science into human application. I mean, you are really at the pinnacle uh, of doing this. Of this, well, thanks, thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, and great, uh, great podcaster. <laughs> thanks a lot, Walter. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Metabolic Link. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with others. Leave a comment. Leave a review, and also follow us on social media at Metabolic Health Summit. We look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.